Father, I pray, Father, that, um, that whatever is of you today would really stir people's spirits, Lord. I pray that it would resound in their hearts, that they would hear from you today, Lord. Just really um, thank you for this, this Palm Sunday, this precious day, Lord. We just worship you with our whole beings, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm really excited about this holy, this holy, holy week. Starting today, this is the first day. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about my experience when I first got to know the Lord. I came to the Lord, I got to know him, I met him in college. I was a sophomore in college, I was 19. I wasn't looking for Jesus, I wasn't expecting him. Um, Certainly nothing in my childhood prepared me for a charismatic God. Um, I remember one time in in our church, we were going to, you know, I'm not in the middle, am I? I am in the middle, okay. (laughs) Felt like I wasn't. But I went to a congregational church, and we were very, very, very conservative, and we didn't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, and certainly not anything strange, because we were Connecticut people. (laughs) And Connecticut people are very straight-laced, very conservative, pretty aloof, And so there I was in a congregational church, and one day this group came in. And they started to, they, the pastor brought them in right up front, and they started talking about how, one girl talked about how her finger had been cut off, and then someone else in the group had prayed for her finger, and it had grown out. And I was saying, this is just weird. And then they started praying for people, had people come up, which that was weird too, because we never did altar calls. And so people came up, for, came forward, and people would, this group would pray for them, and they would speak in tongues. It was the first time I ever heard of speaking in tongues, and that was really bizarre, and, and very annoying to me, and very irritating. And I decided I would never, ever be one of those people, and I didn't think it was really, had anything to do with Christianity, And at any rate, my mom felt the same way, and we never went back to that church. And we had been there for years, but we never went back. His mom said, those are strange people. So we left. Many times we left churches. So so then I get to college, and my freshman year and part of my sophomore year, I just go wild for a Connecticut girl. I went really wild. And then my sophomore year... I met Jesus, and I honestly was not looking for him. Um, I went through some really bad times, and then we had a dear pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church, and I was at a retreat. How I got on a retreat, I have no clue. But I was on a Christian retreat and feeling really mad, because Bruce had just broken up with me, and I was really angry, really, really mad, angry person. Um, And so there I was at this retreat, really grumpy, not really knowing anybody, and Pastor Miller took probably two to three hours just to talk to me. And during that time, I don't know how he did it, I imagine the Holy Spirit showed up, but um, he led me, he introduced me and led me to the real Jesus, which I had never met in, in my childhood. It was an incredible moment. And after that, I went I actually didn't accept the Lord at that point. I went back to my my room, and I just started to, to pray. And I was just praying there, and I said, 
Jesus, if this is really true, if this is who you are, if you really care about me, just come into me right now. I had the most amazing experience that I knew had to be from God because, once again, Connecticut people are not full of passion. And this amazing, I mean, what I know to be the baptism of the Spirit, just this came down upon me and I instantly started praying in tongues. And it was like, oh my, I've become one of those. And my next thought was, who cares? So that was my experience. And at that point started this amazing few months of an amazing experience. I, for the first time in my life, and I tried to find this with, um, with drugs and with you know, the, the flower children that I knew in college. I had tried so desperately for community. I knew I wanted community. I knew I wanted family, and I didn't have that in my own family. And I was just wanting that so bad. And I found community. The believers were absolutely amazing on my campus. And my church was absolutely incredible. Pastor Miller really took me under his wing. And he was phenomenal. Um, we just had such an amazing time. Um, it was the beginning of, of the Jesus People revival. And, you know, if you haven't lived through a revival, I hope you do at some point. It is a time where miracles just happen all the time. It becomes the norm. And it's a time where salvations just happen. You just meet people, even in the grocery store line, and you tell them about Jesus, and right there they become believers. It's incredible. It's like picking ripe apples. Like there's, there's no effort. It just these things just happen, and they fall into place. And that was my experience for several months. It was just glorious. It was heaven on earth. And, of course, I expected that to always be like that because that's what I was experiencing. Well, a few months, just a short few months later, Bruce and I, I dropped out of, I really believe God was telling me to drop out of school. And that just made my parents so happy. No. And, um, and I decided to get, Bruce and I decided to get married. Um, here I am, 19. My parents think I'm going crazy. And, um, and they disowned me, and, and so many things just happen all at once. They disowned me because of this marriage, but our marriage is going terribly. And I'm thinking, wow, I did all this just for this. So in, in just, <laughs> just a few months, oh, and then we moved into Bruce's stepmom's home, his dad's home, but his dad had just left his stepmom, so she was really bummed out. She was really depressed, and so it was a home of mourning. I had lost my education. I loved school. I'd lost my education, my home, um, my inheritance, my, you know, just, I'd lost my, oh, and then what happened is our church, this was a conservative Baptist church, and we Jesus people were weird, Okay, I mean, we've, Bruce and I, believe it or not, you may think we're weird now. We have worked hard not to be that weird. We have worked hard on that. So here we're not, you know, here I am. And the Baptist church that I've come to really love, there were people in the church who asked us to leave. So here we are. I have no church, no education. No, the only thing I have is a marriage that actually wasn't going well. 
And then to top it off, I didn't ask your permission. I meant to ask you if this was okay. I hope it's okay with you. But um, Bruce is depressed too. And he decides, he's saying, well, you know, all this bad stuff has happened. Maybe marijuana isn't so bad. Maybe I sh we should just start smoking marijuana again. So he gets some marijuana. Now, I want you to know, I decided that wasn't a good idea. But he decided it was a good idea. But he said he was going to make an experiment and ask God what he thought. So he's, he smoked some marijuana, got into my brand new car, and totaled it. At which point he said to me, eh, it's not a good idea to smoke marijuana. Okay. <laughs> You're, you and your signs. Um, they always seem to hurt me for some reason, your signs. But what I didn't know then that would have really helped me, what I know now, is the kingdom of God is here, as Jesus has said, it's here, but the kingdom of God hasn't fully come. So you have these times, we all do, where we have these peaks and we have these valleys. We all have that. We experience that. It's frustrating. It's hard. But we have those times where things work extremely well and God is breaking in constantly and times where it seems like, where are you, God? And so I think Palm Sunday is a great time to talk about expectations. So I'm going to talk right now, start out with these verses. Now, you know these verses really well. And I saw that video for the first time, just like you did this morning. I'm thinking, well, that was my whole teaching. So you've already heard it. But let's see if God, you can hear things over and over again, and God can anoint. So let's go for it. So today is the beginning of Holy Week. We've called it that since the fourth, believers have called it that since the fourth century. It's also called the Passion Week, Passio, Latin, for suffering. So this is the week. It begins today and goes until next Sunday. And it would be great if all of you would just follow through this whole week with Jesus. It'll mean something to you. It, God will do things in you. You know, um, it, was a very, it was very significant, I thought, that in studying Palm Sunday... All four Gospels talk about Palm Sunday. All four Gospels. Except that some of them, some, some of the people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some of them add some things. And so it's a very significant... One, one way you can approve um, historical ac accuracy or authenticity is by when you have several different sources saying similar things. And they pretty much agree on all the facts, except that they add, each adds a few things that the others don't. So I, at first, was going back and forth between all four, and it got really cumbersome. So I want you to know I did something that I don't even know if you're allowed to do, but I took, I put all different verses from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in chronological order. So that's what we're going to go through today. So it looks like we're jumping around, but it's the same story. Okay, let's go to um, two, please. Jesus' route this week. First of all, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. And it says somewhere in scripture that he 
he put his face, he determined, he was, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. He knew he had to go there. He had to go there. You know, and he had some opposition even among his disciples because he knew he was going there to die. He knew that. And it wasn't unusual for Jews to go into Jerusalem at this time of the year. It was Passover. Thousands of people traveled to going there. But this was a very special year. And Jesus knew that. He was the main one, the only one that knew that this was a special Passover. And he had just passed through Jericho. This has nothing to do with anything unless you see it as an analogy. But I found out that Jericho is the lowest point on earth. And he had just, he had just 1,300 feet below sea level. A very low point. And he had just gone through Jericho. He had healed blind, the blind man, Bartimaeus, that had got a lot of tension. And he was traveling all the way to the Mount of Olives, which has a lot of history to it. But it's, for the believer, we, this is really important. We know that's where Jesus was on the top of Mount, of Mount of Olives when he ascended um, into heaven to be with the Father. And so here he is traveling up, and that Mount of Olives is 2,600 feet above sea level. So he's going from a low point all the way to a very high point. And I think that can be an analogy for this whole week. Um, okay, let's go to the next slide. John 12, 17. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. Okay, there were so many crowds in Jerusalem at this point when Jerusalem, when Jesus came into Jerusalem at this point. Um, normally, Jerusalem had 50,000 people. Um, there are different commentators that say different numbers were there when Jesus was there. Some say 100,000, some say 120,000. Barclay, whoever he is, says two and a half million people. But at any rate, even if it's the lowest number, 100,000, Jerusalem was too small to contain all those people. So what you saw was people going on the sides, uh, on the hills, and they were living there. And so you had huge, huge crowds at that time. What's important about that is it made the Roman leaders and the German, uh, German, Jewish leaders very nervous because here the Jews are celebrating Passover, which we know is when Moses led and rescued the Jews away from a dictator. And so here, every year they celebrate this thing and think about how that would, could make the Romans a little bit nervous. So there's these huge, huge crowds, and a lot of them are up on the hills. So as Jesus comes in, before, way before he gets to Jerusalem, there, and he's coming down from the Mount of Olives, there are people going in front of him and behind him and surrounding him who have already heard about him. Um, you know, one of the things they've heard about is Lazarus, the raising of the dead. And that is a key point to them because if he could do that, if Jesus could do that, then certainly the Roman leaders were no match for him. And that's what they were thinking. So he's surrounded by these people. Okay, next verse. 
Luke 19.29. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. Here's the point of this whole section. Jesus was in charge of all the details from now on. Now, what's interesting about that, different commentaries say different things. The more charismatic ones say that Jesus had a word of knowledge. Now, the ones that aren't charismatic say that he prearranged all this. I don't know. The point is, the very point is, is that Jesus gave instructions. He was in charge. He is taking authority because he wants this day to be exactly what was prophesied. So he is leading this. This is really different for him, by the way. If you remember that in the days before this, when he would heal people, he almost always would say, don't tell anybody. Or when they wanted to force him to be king, the people. Do you remember when the 5,000, he fed those, then people wanted to force him to be king? And during those times, he, he just went. He just took off. Or if the people wanted to kill him, he just took off. And so he did not want trouble. He didn't want to be out in the limelight. He didn't want to be out there where everybody could see him. He wasn't looking for a public platform. By the way, this is the only time that Jesus recorded that he rides something rather than walks. Okay, let's go to the next one, please. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is an incredible, just incredible verses right here. Jesus isn't in Jerusalem yet. He comes up to the Mount of Olives, and I've never been there but apparently there's suddenly a clearing and you can see Jerusalem just in front of you. And he looks at it and he knows what's going to happen. He understands. No one else does, but he knows. And he looks down upon them and he says, this was your time. If you had only understood it, if you had only seen me for who I am. And then he says this thing about how how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Now, this is one thing that I thought of. You know, people will say things like, God is, you know, God is the judge. He's like such a, you know, angry, angry God. Well, Jesus shows us who God is. Jesus shows us his heart. And there is Jesus crying 
I mean, this is how Jesus feels. He doesn't judge us. He takes our pain and he wears it. He wears it in his heart. And so maybe you could call this judgment. I don't see any judgment in that at all. It's what he's saying is going to happen because they did not receive their king. And 40 years later, that's exactly what did happen. Jerusalem was destroyed, and it was, wasn't until 19, 1948 when they were able to be back in Jerusalem. Next one, please. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Matthew, especially, I mean, he's writing to a Jewish audience. He especially wants us to understand that what is happening as Jesus enters Jerusalem has been prophesied to the smallest detail. It's been prophesied. And so he, he tells us, um, he quotes Zechariah 9.9. And, you know, he's saying, this is your king. This is king of Israel. This is who's been prophesied. And it, it, you know how Jesus always does things, says things, he declares them, and then he does them? He's not just someone who talks. Jesus has talked, and of course he's done miracles, but here he's like living history. He's demonstrating his kingship for everybody to see. Now, but what's interesting here, there's a word in the Zechariah. um, Here it's translated lowly. It's it's a Greek word, or Hebrew, ani, A-N-I. I'm probably not pronouncing it right. But it means afflicted, oppressed, and it's a word usually used in Hebrew to talk about the poor. So here's the king, clearly a king, but he's coming in as a poor king. That's just really bizarre. So next. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Praise God, Hosanna, for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. That is often called, Jeff, you'll have to tell me that's right, but Hillel. This is the Hillel in in Jewish tradition. They would have said this every year anyway. This is something they would have yelled out. But this time, they're surrounding Jesus, and they're saying it to him. Now, it's interesting. Praise God, it's translated here, is actually the word Hosanna um, in the Hebrew, and it means God save us. So they're yelling out, God save us, God save us. But what they're talking about, God save us from Roman domination, where God's intention wasn't just, wasn't that. God wanted to save them from their sin. See, bigger picture. I certainly understand them wanting to be, I mean, we've never been under domination. 
I certainly, if I had, were living in a dictatorship, I would say the same thing. God, please, get us out of this dictatorship. But God's idea of salvation for the Jews was he wanted to save their lives for eternity. Let's look next at a picture of, see up, up top, that is what they were familiar with. Conquering heroes. Not only, I mean, the Romans would come in whenever they conquered a place, and they would come in in these huge stallions, make a big show. It was a big parade. And they would have their prisoners and all the booty they had gotten. And it was a big show. And Romans were very, well, they understood that. They would throw down palms, and, which meant victory. And, but the Jews had also adopted that when um, there had been generals or conquering heroes um, who had done the same thing and would come in in a big show. And Jesus wasn't like that. First of all, he rides a donkey, not a, not a horse. Now, a donkey was a symbol for the Jews. It did mean that he was a king, but it meant that he was a king of peace, not war. He was a king of peace. It meant, as the video said, that he wasn't there to destroy his enemies, but to love them. I mean, this was just bizarre. And here he has, he's followed by his disciples. Those are his prisoners, maybe, but instead of conquering them, he loved them and brought them into new life. He's very opposite of what they wanted and what they expected. So Jesus doesn't come as people expect him to come. You know, I, I was just saying, consider how Jesus comes and how America thinks of success. You know, with our success, we network, network, network. We want a public, you know, we're very, very public. We want, we want to be on the mic. We want everybody to see us. It's so, Jesus is so different, his idea of success, than what our idea of success is. Um, you know, I was talking to Jonathan about this this week, and I said, was, was there a time whenever, when you had expectations, and you were praying, 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 and, and it just kind of went just the opposite? And he said, yeah, he said back when um, George W. Bush was running, he said he was so, so very excited and he was praying and praying, and he really felt like this was the Christian man that was going to bring in a whole new society into America, and he was going to stop abortion, and he was going to make things right. And he said none of that happened. And he said he was just so crushed that he says he still votes, but inside that was such a disappointing experience for him. You know, I just want to say, I mean, we're in the midst of lots of politics right now, I, I'm, I'm registered as an independent on purpose because my citizenship is in heaven. And, but I vote because I feel it's really important to vote. I think women especially paid a big price for that, so I vote. But you know what? That isn't my main thing. I mean, I want, I want certain people to win. You want people to, certain people to win. But you know, that must not be our broad picture here, ever because we are citizens of another world. So, and we have to keep that. That's one reason why we ask new newcomers who come here that if you join here, politics never becomes an argument between you guys. 
between all of us because that's not our main thing. That's not why we're together. You know, in the 70s, there was a big campaign, Christian campaign, and we were all supposed to wear these big buttons. I wonder if you remember this. And it said, I found it. You remember that? I found it. And someone like asked me what, or something like that. And then there were billboards all over the country that said, I found it, ask me why. And so they, what was supposed to happen is you'd wear these big buttons and people would come up to you and say, what did you find? And you would say, I found life in Christ. And you can too. It totally flopped. Totally. Tons of money went into that and totally flopped. And here's the thing. That's often not how the kingdom works. The kingdom works as you pray for an individual and, and the Holy Spirit comes down. That it's usually one person after another, after another, after another. It's not usually big campaigns. Anyway, that's my soapbox right there. Um, okay, next one, please. And when he had come yes, um, into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now notice, they didn't get it right, who Jesus was. That word moved actually is the word, um, I can't pronounce it, it's S-E-I. It actually, we get the word seismic from it, earthquake. Jesus made such a resounding movement in the whole Jerusalem that it was like an earthquake emotionally. Okay, there was a frenzy. It's no wonder the Romans were a little bit nervous because something was happening and they were calling this man, Jesus, their king. So there was a lot of stress happening. Let's go next. Look at Pharisees were kind of nervous too. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know, stop them. Stop them from calling you king. Just stop it. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So do you see how he's coming much more into the open now? He's saying, this is this. I am king. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And in this whole story, Besides Jesus knowing what was happening, it feels to me like the Pharisees had a prophetic word. They understood that the world was coming after Jesus. They understood that. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, went into the temple. After looking carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Okay. Now, most of the, most of the Gospels say that he came into Jerusalem, that triumphal entry, and then right away he went to the temple and cleansed it. Mark puts that on the next day. Okay, so Sunday he comes in to this, you know, this big parade, and he looks around, according to Mark. He goes to the temple, looks around, and then leaves Jerusalem and goes to Bethany with his friends. Nothing happens! Do you understand how that must have frustrated them? The crowd who thought they, he was coming in to be this incredible, incredible king. He looks around and leaves. 
there's a reason why this fervor when came, you know, when, when expectations are dashed, there's a good chance for violence. And that's what happened. That's what happened here. Anticlimax. Look at 12. Uh, that's the... There, thanks. His disciples did not understand these things at first. This is John writing much later. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. No one understood, including his closest friends, what this moment of history was all about. No one understood. The bad news is that the crowds were cheering a fantasy. He wasn't going to do what they expected. He didn't lead a revolution against Caesar. But the good news is that exactly what they were saying about Jesus was the truth. And he did way more than they ever could have imagined. It just amazed me how much, I mean, they didn't understand and how much he was doing. And doing exactly what he had promised. But they didn't understand that. Think about if Jesus had said, okay, I'll be your king. And he had decided that. He had decided to be their king, Israel's king. He could have done that. And if he had done that, he would have been, I mean, he would have been in the history books, but we probably wouldn't know anything about him. He wouldn't be, he wouldn't have accomplished dying for the whole world, and he wouldn't have done anything about our sin, which is what, what his purpose was. So do you understand what they wanted was such a small thing compared to what Jesus is prepared to do? Okay, now I want you to keep that in mind. Our expectations can be dangerous. Now, I'm not talking about faith here, and I'm, I'm not talking, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to tell you the difference between expectations and faith. There is a difference. Our expectations can be really dangerous. Um, you know, when I was that teenage girl, I had expectations that that high point, that Mount of Olives point, or that triumphant entry that I was experiencing, that Palm Sunday part of my life, was going to continue forever. And so when I had conflict pretty close after that, I didn't know what to do with that. I was depressed and discouraged and felt like the promises God had given me were not true. I was, I was like all his followers during this time. So how do we respond when things don't work out as we have expected? I think, first of all, I know, I know too much now. I know more. And not because I'm brilliant or wise. It's because I've seen God's broader picture over and over and over again in my life. You know, I think we're all, this is my analogy, I think we're all like a book. Our life is like a book that God has written. And we're either in the beginning of that book or in the middle of the book or towards the end of the book, wherever we are in that book, if we're alive, we haven't seen the end yet. You know, I have a relative that always reads the end of the book first because she doesn't want to, um, she wants to know if she really wants to read the book. She wants to make sure it ends well. 
Well, we know, even if we don't know what the end is, we have certain promises that God has made us. And we may not understand the moment that we're in. Let me give you, let me give you a little story. And I hope this doesn't offend anybody. But one of the things that happened, no, it won't offend you. One of the things that, that happened when I was 19 is you know, we got married and I got pregnant right away. Um, we had decided that, we had talked to Pastor Miller, dear Pastor Miller about it, and said we had decided not to use any birth control because we were just going to trust God and we really felt God wasn't going to give us children for several years because we had important stuff to do for God. Well, I got pregnant within probably two weeks. And, um, so, and Pastor Miller so wisely said to us, well, then you'll have children. And so, and um, I think he prophesied that, that little baby into existence. Um, so I had, I had this baby, and then um, we had planned our next baby two years later. And I had this plan in my head. I had felt God had told me that I was going to have three boys and two girls. So then I got that promise, so I started planning. I wanted them every two years apart. I mean, this was going to work. And so two years later, I miscarried. Two years after that, I miscarried. And I started um, getting really, that second miscarriage actually was almost a stillbirth. And I'd gotten past my fourth month, and I was thinking, you know, I'm home free now. And this is going to be great. And I miscarried. And I started remembering how my mom had had 12 miscarriages and started feeling like God thinks I'm a terrible mother. He doesn't want me to have any more children. And then a teaching was going around at that time that if you, you know, were sick or miscarried or anything bad like that, it was your fault. You didn't have enough faith. So that's a really cruel theology, by the way, and not true. But I embraced that. So I felt really, really horrible. Well, on the day, second time I miscarried, we, we did a wise thing. We went to see Reverend Downing in Baltimore, who's a prophet. And I was just a mess. I mean, I was crying all the time. And so he started praying for us. And he said, Lynn, the Lord says there's something really wrong physically with you. I'm not going to go into the details, but he said there's something physically wrong with you. He said, you're not meant to have any children at all. He said, but... He said, when I want you to have another child, you will have another child. And then he said, but the big problem is, is you're planning out your life, and you're not asking me. So we went home with that, and we prayed, and then the next time I did get pregnant, we, we felt it was the Lord's will, I started miscarrying again, and I was really, really upset. And we called Reverend Downing. I was five months pregnant at this time. We called Reverend Downing, and he said, no, no, no. You listen to the Lord this time, and this time you will have this baby. I will get the church to pray. The whole church prayed for us. And my, I, I was bleeding really hard, and he said, at that point, my bleeding stopped, never to return. Even though I still have the same problems I had from the beginning. So, but here's the thing. God had a broader picture here. And now when I think of all the tragedy that those two miscarriages felt like in my life, we wouldn't have had our other kids if we hadn't had that space of time. I don't know how to see that, except that I know I'm very glad with what God's done in my life with my children and with us. God is amazing. So here's the thing. 
Jesus did not come to meet our expectations, but to meet our needs. Next verse, please. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So I don't know what you're wrestling with right now. It could be you know, you're wrestling with healing or you're wrestling, maybe you're single and you wish you were married or maybe you didn't get that job you wanted or maybe you're not successful in the world's eyes or whatever it is you're wrestling with. This is how I feel about it. And this may sound unsympathetic, but God has a greater plan for you. God has a greater plan. God is doing something on your behalf. When you pray, he listens to you. He hears you. And he's working out a plan to make you whole. He wants to save us, and that's what he's come to do. So, Father, I just um, pray for all of us, Father, that this week as we walk through the Holy Week with you, that you will work in our hearts, Father. That, Father, our expectations, any Good Friday expectations we have, Father, that you're not coming through with, Father, I pray that you would bring us to the Easter Sunday where you are the Lord and King of our lives, Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.